From Michigan Radio, this is the It's Just Politics edition of Stateside. I'm Zoe Clark. Governor Gretchen Whitmer and her Republican opponent, Tudor Dixon, debated for the first time yesterday evening in Grand Rapids. Crime is up, jobs are down, schools are worse, and the roads didn't get fixed. I've heard a lot of complaining and grievance tonight. What I haven't heard is alternative solutions. We'll be joined by the political roundtable as we break down what each candidate had to say about abortion, the economy, and inflation, and the latest on poll numbers in the race for governor. But first, Michigan is home to one of the most competitive and expensive congressional races in the country. It's a district that went for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020, but that Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin has represented for the past two terms. This year, she is running to keep the new 7th Congressional District against Republican State Senator Tom Barrett. Rather than a debate, Slotkin and Barrett have already done two. I want to use this time this week and next to talk about what it means to represent a swing district when the country feels so divided. Next week, State Senator Barrett will be here. This week, I sat down with Congresswoman Slotkin, and I began by asking her what it's like to run in such a big race that is getting such national attention. Well, you know, I feel like I've always been in really competitive races. And so I think if you've only grown up running in competitive elections, it's not a challenge, but it's work. And the minute you sleep on this district is the minute you lose. So we do what we do every time, which is we outwork our opponents and engage with people beyond the ground. And we have the largest field campaign in the country right now, or I should say for the Midwest. And Michigan is a place that people just want to know what's going on. We're often a harbinger of what's to come nationally. So we're used to it by now, but we're working hard. You're out there on the ground. What are you hearing from voters? There's no way around it. The top issues, you know, in no particular order, it just depends on who you're talking to, are inflation in the economy, the price of everything, and then kind of the future of work, right? Are we going to have jobs into the future? Are we going to be the manufacturing state of the next generation? The price of healthcare and prescription drugs still is just enduring. And then thirdly, the one that shot to the top of the charts was the overturning of Roe and Proposition 3. So one or two of those is almost always the first thing we hear at the doors, the first thing that people pull me aside to talk about. You're an incumbent, and there's often this sense among voters, particularly now when you look at polls, is the country on the right track? It's not looking good when you see how voters are feeling. What's your sense when you hear from voters saying, we're worried about the economy, we're worried about inflation, gas prices, and then maybe a disconnect actually feeling like Washington is making a difference? Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like I hear that every day. For me as a leader, you know, I was a former CIA officer and Pentagon official. And so those organizations really take a lot of time to train people in leadership because it's a chain of command organization. They need leaders and they need to be building the bench. And a leader can't be just focused on gloom and doom and everything's terrible. You need to be honest with people like a good coach. You need to give people tough love. You need to acknowledge when things aren't going in the right direction. But you're always rooting for the team. That, for me, is how I approach those questions is like, look, we are going through a really difficult moment in our history. There is no doubt about it because of inflation and the price of everything, but also just politically. It was never so polarized and vitriolic where neighbors were angry with neighbors over politics. And for me, I still feel optimistic that we will get through this. 
We've gotten through really difficult history, you know, chapters in our history, but we do it through engaged citizens and principled leaders. Well, let's talk a little bit about leadership in Washington. You voted present for a vote uh, that would have made Nancy Pelosi and did make her a Speaker of the House. Talk to me a little bit about your concerns about Democratic leadership in D.C. Yeah, it was twice. It was a commitment I made actually before I was elected. It's a small group of us, I think three, who have not voted for her twice. That certainly changes the dynamic with our relationship in Washington. When I look around, certainly at the Democratic Party, we are a big tent. There are a lot of different kinds of Democrats, and that's usually our strength. That's what makes us strong is that we can have people who represent in places like New York or California, but also in places like Michigan. I would just would like to see a bit more of even representation of that Midwestern, right? It's hard to miss that we got a lot of California, a lot of New York, and I understand that that's where there's heavy pockets of Democrats, but it means that sometimes you're fighting for that Midwestern voice in Washington, Like I said, I come from places that are constantly building the bench of leadership. And the Democratic Party, I can't speak for the Republican Party, the Democratic Party has done a piss poor job of building that bench, of giving some oxygen to that next generation. And by the way, I'm 46. I'm not even that next generation, right? The people who are running the House are all over 80. The people who are running the Senate, 75 plus. And for me, it's not just a factor of age, but it's about squelching those leaders who are coming up and not giving them a little oxygen. You say there's one of three Democrats that voted that way. Are there others who just don't feel like they can? Yes. And that's between them and their conscience. There are definitely people who say, well, I'm with you, but I don't want the wrath of, you know, leadership coming down on us. And you just have to make a choice as a legislator. It's the same thing that happens to me when I'm either the only Democrat or one of the only Democrats who votes, let's say, with the Republicans on an amendment. That pressure from the whip staff, the whip team, senior leaders in the party, and you just have to have a stiff enough spine to withstand that pressure. And some would like to vote that way, but just don't feel that they can. Let's talk about some of those votes and how you're representing your constituency. This term you are moving from Holly, Michigan to Lansing Mm -hmm. because your district changed because of redistricting. How will that change and these change in voters who you're representing Mm -hmm. if you win? What will that mean for how you decide about votes to take? You know, I've been asked this, actually, it's a good question about how, as a leader, do you decide to vote? Do you kind of like take the temperature and vote always how Mm -hmm. your district Mm -hmm. wants you to vote? Or do you sometimes break on principle, you know, or vice versa? And I think for me, there's a lot of issues where we get a lot of mail, a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls, where you get a sense of what people are thinking on sometimes very specific issues. If I don't know much about an issue, I will take my cues from my constituents and start to dig in once they show me how interested they are in sometimes a very small issue. So often I feel very confident that I'm voting on behalf of the majority of my district. But again, coming from the Pentagon, you don't lead a military operation or an intelligence operation by majority vote you sometimes have to make hard decisions that are based on principle. And I think one of the best things for me was that in my first year as a congresswoman in a Trump voting district, I had to make some very important decisions about my votes. I did it very publicly, particularly on the issue of impeachment. We held town halls. I was being heckled and followed and, you know, the whole zoo. But it was, for me, a really important first lesson that you have to be willing to lose your seat. 
it's okay if you lose your seat. I don't want to. I don't intend to. But you have to be able to put something above just getting reelected. And the safe answer for me in a Trump voting district would have been to say, I don't support impeachment. I'm going to mm-hmm. break from the party and use that in every ad and blah, blah, blah. But it just wasn't right. So your new district encompasses Michigan State University. You were against Biden's proposal, student loan forgiveness. Yeah. How will that play in with this new district, for example? Yeah, well, I mean, I represent Michigan State now. I represent about 65% of the new 7th district, so about 35% of it is new. I represent five colleges and universities, and so I understand acutely how difficult college affordability is right now. I mean, I hear about it constantly. But that policy was a Band-Aid on a gaping wound, and it didn't get to the core problem. It doesn't help a current freshman at Michigan State. It doesn't help someone about to apply for college. It doesn't help that fundamental core problem that even our state institutions have gotten too expensive. I understand, and of course, I was happy for the people who are going to get some relief, but I'm not going to agree that it's fantastic policy when it doesn't get to that core root problem. Finally, Congresswoman, if you do win, what are you going to push for? What are top priorities in this next term? Yeah. So I think for me, we have some pretty big issues that are still on the agenda. We have to deal with the situation with childcare. Every business owner I know is desperate for employees. And if you want to unleash the true power of our workforce, you need affordable, accessible childcare. We don't have that right now, and that is an inhibitor on unleashing the full potential of our workforce. And then we've got to get to some of those really difficult issues that no one wants to talk about, like immigration. Our immigration system is broken, full stop. It's not working for anybody. Rational people could solve this problem, but people have become completely irrational about it, and it just doesn't work. And then I think reforming the House, what you see on TV with this bad behavior by members of Congress on both sides of the aisle sometimes is because the incentive structure is off in Congress. So there's a group of us who are working on some reforms. As part of the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus or a different group? This would be for the Democratic Caucus. Oh, okay. To try and get at some of our core problems. So for instance, term limits on committee chairs, Mm. which is actually something the Republicans have. This is what I talked about, about building the bench and giving some air to newer leaders coming up. If you have to be in Congress for 30 years in order to be a chairperson, then the strongest folks may not end up being there. But if you said there's an eight-year term limit or a six-year term limit or whatever it is, then you're suddenly going to start to see a greater rotation of folks who are really competing for those positions. So there's some things I want to clean up in the House about how to leverage what happens after November. Child care, immigration, some internal changes, can those things actually get done in such a divided Congress? Well, I think if you work from a place of try, like your goal is actually to get something done and not have a messaging bill, your goal is to legislate, then you build the bills from the beginning as bipartisan, and you try. You don't get to say, oh, it's too hard. Our country's too polarized. And so I'm not going to work on the issues that are plaguing our country. That's not what the job is for. So we're going to try. Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin running for her third term would be representing Michigan's new 7th Congressional District. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. And a reminder that next week we'll be speaking with Republican State Senator Tom Barrett. He is running to unseat Slotkin. So let us turn now to our amazing political roundtable. We have Mara McDonald, reporter at WDIV in Detroit. Hey, Mara. 
Hi, Zoe. Simon Schuster, political reporter at MLive. Hello, Simon. Hello. It's great to be here in person. So good to have you here in person. And Laura Weber Davis is here. She is the executive producer of Stateside and I should note former Capitol reporter for the Michigan Public Radio Network. Hey, Laura. Hey there. So, you guys, let's jump right in. We are 25 days from Election Day, and with absentee ballots already being delivered, incumbent Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer and Republican Tudor Dixon spent nearly an hour yesterday evening in their first debate. There were questions from moderator Rick Albin of Wood TV about abortion, about the economy, education, COVID, crime, the state of our roads. Simon, I want to start with you. You were in Grand Rapids for the debate. First, just give us the broad view. What was the takeaway? Yeah, you know, I think that this was a debate where uh, Dixon really wanted to introduce herself to Michigan. Uh, This was an opportunity for her because she's had uh, so much less money than Whitmer uh, to sort of define herself for an audience that may not know a whole lot about her. And I think that she really was successful in doing that. And Whitmer, I think, really wanted and was hoping to sort of cast a tone and did succeed to some extent as sort of someone who was going to be above the fray that was not going to have to engage with in fights. But uh, Dixon, time and again during this debate, uh, dragged her into fights by making this about her record. Uh, I think that this was a debate that was really backwards looking. Uh, This was a debate that was about Whitmer's record, about and sort of litigating the course of her first four years in office. And so this was not really an opportunity for uh, voters to see what each of these candidates want to do moving forward, Mm -hmm. uh, should either of them be elected, but really sort of uh, whether litigating and trying to determine, you know, what the outcomes of Whitmer's first term in office Mm -hmm. were. Mara, you were also in Grand Rapids. And to Simon's point, I think I was surprised because both at the beginning and at the end, both candidates, uh, Whitmer and Dixon said, you know, we want to talk about the future, not look backwards. But it really was a litigation on the past four years, was it not? I think it was relitigating COVID again and again, which Mm -hmm. has really been a hallmark of Dixon's campaign. And I don't know how effective that is. I will tell you the polling that we have done with the Detroit News suggests that relitigating COVID is not going to be the reason that people are going to vote. But I will say that Dixon's debate prep for this uh, far exceeded anything that I ever saw out of her in the GOP primary debates. Mm -hmm. Laura, you're nodding. Yeah, I I was I think that she came very prepared. She and I think maybe Governor Whitmer sounded uh most taken aback by Tudor Dixon's preparedness, I guess I would say. Maybe she was unaware that she would have a formidable opponent uh last night. Um the moment that was forward looking was talking about inflation. Uh and I thought that was a moment where Governor Whitmer seemed perhaps most concerned about the message that she felt like she needed to convey, because Mm -hmm. it is truly a concern. And uh, there isn't a lot known about what's going to happen, nor what the governor is going to be able to do to stop it. So she seemed to me to show a glimmer of I would not call it fear. She's not a fearful person, but maybe uh, that was the area she seemed most concerned about her ability to message what she's selling to voters. And I thought that there was actually a missed opportunity there for Tudor Dixon to pick on uh, and hammer that point about the great unknowns with inflation. Well, let's actually take a a listen to a little bit of a back and forth. We should know this is going to be a little bit of a longer clip, but I think it really sets into context sort of what we heard overall in that hour. Um, This was a question uh, from the moderator, Rick Albin, again of Wood TV, um, asking about inflation and what exactly a governor can do. Uh, It starts with Whitmer and then it goes to uh, Dixon. Here we are. 
We know that inflation is hurting, whether it's the price of gas or it is the price of groceries. A governor cannot fix global inflation, but what we can do is help keep more money in your pocket. I worked with the Republican legislature to make sure that we leveled the financial barrier to higher education and skills so that people can get into good paying jobs. 170,000 people are in tuition-free programs now. We also expanded TriShare, which started here in Grand Rapids, by the way. The state picks up a third of the cost of daycare, the parent a third of the cost, and the employer a third of the cost. And for people who are really struggling, we have expanded for 150,000 kids in Michigan daycare that is free or low of cost. We also put our fiscal house in order. And because of that, because of the upgrade in our credit rating and the money that we've put in the rainy day fund, we could repeal the retirement tax, which I do support. We could triple the earned income tax credit, which I also support, and a pause on the gas tax. Mrs. Dixon, can you tell me what you think the governor could do? Because obviously it's a big problem. Yeah, well, it's very interesting that they asked about the pension tax because the governor stood here four years ago and said that she would, that that would be one of the first things that she would do would be repeal the pension tax. And that hasn't happened in the four years that she's been governor. In fact, the other question was, would you try to get the income tax down to 3.9? The governor was actually offered two different reductions in the personal income tax to get money back in your pockets, but she vetoed both of those. It's not surprising. This governor has vetoed more bills than any governor for the past 70 years. So it's not surprising. She also had the opportunity to give you a gas tax holiday. And guess what? She vetoed that as well. In fact, Michigan right now has some of the highest gas tax in the nation. We, are, we have some of the highest gas prices in the nation. She hasn't come out and said she's going to give you a gas tax holiday now. If she had done it before, you wouldn't be suffering so badly now. Gretchen Whitmer wants you to pay more for gas to force you into electric vehicles. 30 seconds, go. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to respond to that. I'll just say this. You know, Mrs. Dixon's party has been in control of the Michigan Senate for 40 years. I know she hasn't lived in Michigan that long, but I'm not here to play games. When the legislature sends me a bill and tells you they've cut your taxes, but they know secretly none of it even goes into effect until 2023, I don't play those games. I veto those games. Laura? Yeah, I think that kind of perfectly illustrated what we were saying, right? Because Tudor Dixon was trying to relitigate Whitmer's past four years, and Whitmer's trying to express what she's going to do, you know, coming forward to try and stave off some some uh, impacts of inflation. And it was... Uh, I thought really an interesting moment, maybe one of the more interesting moments of the night, but also a missed opportunity um, where I think that Tudor Dixon came out so strong and she could have really knocked the governor about the future. I could not agree uh, more, Laura, because I think that this really speaks to uh, the missteps here in this debate, which is that um, Tudor Dixon is an exceptionally disciplined politician, as is Gretchen Whitmer. She knew that Whitmer was going to have a litany of accomplishments that she would be able to tout. And Dixon, to her credit, really prepared well and had a counterpunch for each one of these. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is that the, 
while this works really well for your Republican base, there's a whole swath of voters out there who think, you know, Whitmer did a fair enough job, but we're treading uncertain economic waters and they want to hear the pitch from each candidate, what they can do moving forward to sort of right the boat, stabilize things. And uh, if you're just sort of attacking someone for their record and what they've done in the past, you're not hearing that vision moving forward. And I think that that's what we missed. And that's where I think this debate may not move things as much in the race overall as we might like. Mara, did it feel to you at some points that it was sort of like we were watching two folks in two completely different worlds? Yeah. I mean, you know, Tudor Dixon presented a dystopian view of Michigan. You know, everything is awful and this governor hasn't done anything to fix anything. I don't think most people think this state is awful. I mean, I think we have our days when we get frustrated, but I certainly don't think we live in some, you know, post-apocalyptic landscape. And that's really what she was trying to present there, Um, you know, versus the governor who was trying to put a good face on everything you know the reality is somewhere in the middle Mm -hmm. at least to my way of thinking well Mm -hmm. and as we know michigan is a purple state right um the candidates were asked about abortion it was the first uh topic uh, in question that came up in the debate and actually by my count i think spent the most time um on this issue than any other I want to take another listen to the exchange about abortion rights. We should note it's a bit long, but I think it's important. Also, I want to say it might not be appropriate for all years. So this might be a moment just to turn the volume down for about a a minute and a half. So let's take a listen. And we begin here with Republican candidate Tudor Dixon. My position on abortion is clear. I am pro-life with exceptions for life of the mother. But I understand that this is going to be decided by the people of the state of Michigan or by a judge. As the governor's already stated, a judge has already ruled in this case. Please understand that the governor doesn't have the choice to go around a judge or a constitutional amendment. She will lie to you tonight and tell you that the governor can do something about a constitutional amendment. But you need to understand that it's very, very clearly written. And you should understand her position. It's extremely radical. It's abortion up to the moment of birth. She's already proven it with her record of voting. She voted no on a ban on partial birth abortion. That's how radical Gretchen Whitmer is on abortion. And she'll continue lying to you now. Governor, I'd like for you to define your position on abortion. Mrs. Dixon is either woefully underinformed about the office she's running for, or she's lying to you. It's that simple. A governor will absolutely impact these rights. In fact, the only right abortion is still accessible in Michigan is because of my action. This is a candidate who said a 14-year-old child raped by a family member is a perfect example of why we shouldn't have abortion rights. I've been fighting to maintain the law as it is. That's what I support, Rick. Here's the fact of the matter. To protect our rights, we cannot trust Ms. Dixon. Mara, was this debate helpful uh, for viewers and listeners in better understanding uh, these candidates' stances uh, on, on abortion rights? Of course not, Zoe. (laughs) Listen, I found this to be the most interesting part of this entire debate, and here's why. All the polling that we have done has shown that Tudor Dixon's stance on abortion access Mm -hmm. and abortion rights uh, craters her campaign Mm -hmm. and has caused real heartburn for her. And what you saw last night is very similar to what we saw last week. This campaign is trying to shift their 
messaging on abortion. For example, Tudor Dixon's town hall last week, she says, well, I have never I have never said I was running on my personal pro-life position. She's trying to move this out of the way. Uh, last night was really interesting in that she went on the attack to try and, you know, frame this as, as the governor is the radical here. Um, abortion access is a problem for her. It's a problem for her campaign. And the messaging that the Whitmer camp and its allies have done on her since the, the end of the primary has been brutal for her campaign. The other interesting thing is she would really like the convenience of the lawsuit to sort of dismiss the issue for her and to just say, well, it's up to the judges. It's before the Supreme Court. It will be answered by a judge so that it will just sort of settle it as if that answers the question for everybody. But as we just discovered, the judges of this nation and the state don't ever really answer the question about this issue. And it will consistently be now into the future a question that lawmakers will have to answer. It's not something that a judge is going to decide. It is something that is going to be political for generations to come at this moment. I couldn't agree more with what both of you had said. But I think what's important to note here is Rick Albin uh, of Wood TV, who did an excellent job moderating this debate, asked Governor Whitmer very specifically, what is your stance on abortion? And she did not answer the question when this is an issue that has been central to her campaign. And this is sort of the the treacherous waters that are being walked here by Governor Whitmer and Tudor Dixon, is that um, if Proposal 3 passes, then it's going to come to the legislature and the governor to come together and decide how they would want to regulate uh abortion as, you know, an accessible procedure past the point of fetal viability. And this is not something that Governor Whitmer wants to talk about at all. Hmm. For her, the most convenient framing is that uh, a vote for me is a vote to return to the, uh, you know, a world where Roe v. Wade is enacted once again. And, and, and that she's going to continue to fight like hell, right? right? Has been what she continues to talk and about. And any level of detail beyond that is extremely inconvenient for her campaign. Hmm. So... We have a second and likely, most likely, final debate uh, on Tuesday, October 25th. Um, Laura, what do you think these candidates need to do between now and that next debate post what we heard uh, last evening? Which, again, as we noted, for some might have been really the first time that some voters are hearing from and and seeing Tudor Dixon. You know, um, for Tudor Dixon, I think that she has rightfully picked up that the winning issue for her is the rights of parents to be an active part of their child's education. And to sort of leave some of that up to the imagination of what that means, because as a parent, if you hear, well, you're going to take away my rights as a parent, that could be scary on many levels. So to continue to dig into that Uh, is probably really smart for her to gain any more momentum here. And as we saw last night in Dearborn, at the Dearborn school board meeting that had been canceled earlier in the week, it was held again last night, um, the Republican candidates for attorney general and secretary of state were apparently there, (laughs) Um, uh, in essence, making their campaign bids that this is an issue they want to get in on you should have parental control over what your kids are reading. And even though that has little to nothing to do with the jobs they are actually seeking, it is 
smart for them to get on that train because it is very emotional for many parents. And I think that the entire Republican ticket has probably hit on something in in stoking that concern as people saw their kids backslide during the pandemic. There are plenty of concerns that are valid. And so to say those any concerns you have about your child's education is a valid one. And I'm here to say I will make it better is probably a smart one for them. And we're going to talk after a break in a moment a little bit about where polling is at and whether some of these issues are actually resonating. Um, but Simon, really quickly, I just have to ask this. I'm mm-hmm. always curious about this uh, post debates when I have covered them and you're there and they do these things called scrums, right? Where so after both candidates uh, debate, they usually go in some kind of back room, right? and all of the reporters are there. And I'm always fascinated by which candidate gets more reporters first because they often come in at the same time. And I always sort of use that as an indication of like, where is the attention going post-debate? In about the last 30 seconds before we have the break, who who had the most reporters uh, in that scrum last night? It's a very good question because initially both candidates had about an equal number. But after about three or four minutes in the scrum that I was with, with with, uh, Governor Whitmer, Mm -hmm. Reporters ran out of questions, hmm. and she was standing there ready to answer more, but there was an awkward silence. And then reporters shifted and went over to Tudor Dixon. And I think that that's so symbolic of this race because we know Governor Whitmer so well as a populist and, and in the media, and we know her record. But essentially, the difficulty is that we don't know a lot about Tudor Dixon, and the public does not either. We need to take a quick break. But as we continue, we will talk the race for the state's highest elected office. Two new polls are out this week in the race for governor. We will dig in. And new numbers show Michigan legislative races are some of the most expensive in the country. Don't necessarily know that we should be proud about that, particularly because your screens are most likely being blanketed with ads. That is coming up after this break. So you three, let's talk about polling in this race for governor. Now, again, we should note this polling all done before last night's debate. But this week, there were two new polls. And the headlines folks likely heard about was the tightening in this race. Um, But we should note earlier polls showed Governor Gretchen Whitmer up by something like 16 or 17 points. Now, Michigan, guys, is not Illinois. It is not California. We are not, you know, we we are not a rich blue state, more of a purple state, as I noted earlier. So this new polling this week, both from CBS as well as the Detroit Free Press, does show the race is tighter. Uh, The Free Press at 11. CBS had six points. Mara, that's about where a race for governor in Michigan three weeks out would likely be. No. No. Yes, that's that's where it would be. But, you know, let's talk about the polling when you saw those plus 16, plus mm-hmm. 17 races versus now. So what our polling with the Detroit News has shown is that Tudor Dixon has a problem, not with base Republicans, but with lean Republican voters, the ones that tend to vote Republican, but they don't do it automatically. And you've got to pitch them and seal the deal. That's why you saw her in places like Rochester Hills last week, Holland, you know, places like that. She's got to seal the deal with lean Republican voters. Our pollster said right out of the gate that he expected this race to tighten. He expected she would seal the deal with at least some 
of those lean Republican voters. And I think that's what you see when you see this race tightening. And I don't think it's a surprise at all to see this race tightening. What I'm interested in is at the end of the day, when November 8th is come and gone, what the margin in this race looks like. Because let's remember, Governor Whitmer beat Bill Schuette by 10 points Mm -hmm. last go round. And he is a far more traditional mainstream Republican. So, Simon, to that point, and and Mara is absolutely right on about, you know, the voters that that Tudor Dixon needs to start, you know, looking at her as a viable candidate. Did last night's debate and some of this rhetoric help some of those more moderate voters? That's the problem, I think. I don't think that we got there. We did not see uh, Tudor or Gresham Whitmer's vision. There was a a, a question in the debate that disappointed me so much, which is... uh, Rick Elbin asked about the large surplus in Michigan's treasury, the multiple billions mm-hmm. of dollars. And he asked, do you want to spend this money and, you know, invest it in a program? Mm-hmm. Do you want to save it? Mm-hmm. And neither of them answered the question, which is uh, remarkable because this is like a really good way Who to Who wouldn't see. want to explain how they're going to spend $6 billion? <laughs> right. uh-huh. I have a vision. <laughs> Laura has a vision. Mara's eyeing exactly. <laughs> something good. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I think that that's really illuminating of where this race is. There's another poll in the 10th district where it shows that uh, Republican John James has a comfortable double-digit lead over Carl Mar- Marlinga, mm-hmm. and of the su- but at the same time, Gretchen Whitmer is comfortably ahead uh, in the gubernatorial race. Twenty-nine percent of the people that are have an opinion in this gubernatorial race are only likely Whitmer. And so, what Tudor Dixon needs to do is one convince them that they can vote in favor of Prop Three and for her, and that she has sort of a vision for the state, an economic and uh, educational vision that is, uh, you know, better than what Whitmer has to offer. Well, Simon, that goes back to our point earlier uh, about Tudor Dixon as a candidate and talking about her personal stance about abortion, because you mentioned Proposal Three. This, of course, is the reproductive freedom for all that would enshrine abortion rights into the state constitution. And Laura, interestingly enough, a couple weeks ago, Tudor Dixon basically tweeted when the Board of State canvassers uh, eventually voted to put this question on the November ballot. Hey, you can now vote for me as a candidate, as a Republican candidate, but also vote in favor of abortion rights. I think it just goes back to this point that yet again, abortion playing into this race. Yeah, right. In in that messaging, she was trying to separate Whitmer from Prop 3, which Whitmer is trying to marry those two messages. And she's trying to say, you can separate those two now because it's going to be they're both going to be on the ballot. So you can separate them. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the fact that it was the first question of the night last night, and even though the both parties would have you believe that the debate or the election is over any number of issues, whether it's an indictment of Trump's policies, whether it's an indictment of uh, Joe Biden's policies or inflation. The fact that that was the first question of the night and that we are constantly hearing polling across the nation about how people are feeling about this and Democrats have this new invigorated feeling that maybe it's not going to be a wash during the midterms goes to show that this kind of is the question that everybody wants to have answered right now is what the future is going to be state by state now that we're in that, that scenario. So a lot of issues uh, were asked about last night. But Mara, I was very surprised about um, two names that didn't come up that much uh, that I would have thought we would have heard a lot about. And that was current president Joe Biden, 
former president, Donald Trump. There was a mention here and there, but I really would have thought, again, with the economy the way it is, inflation, gas prices, we have heard Tudor Dixon sort of, you know, Gretchen Whitmer is riding with Biden. Were you surprised by how little uh, both former and current president were brought up in this debate? No, and here's why. Yeah, tell no, me, me either. Oh, oh, tell me. I want to hear it all. Let's dig in. Mara, you first. <laughs> no, and here's why. Because the polling that I think everybody has done at this point shows that both of these men, both the current president and the former president, are underwater and unpopular. So if Tudor Dixon's going to launch a ride with Biden, all Gretchen Whitmer has to do is is tie Tudor Dixon to a Trump endorsement and all that brings with it. I don't think there's any winning for either of them um, with with delving into allegiances to either of those men. So, Laura, it was mutually assured destruction that if one of them brought <laughs> one president <laughs> right. up, the other one. But I mean, that's exactly it. Both, part both of it, yeah. have, you know, unpopular ratings right now. Uh, well, OK, the other thing is, you know, part of this is a question of age, whether we want to discuss it or not, because both. Joe Biden and Donald Trump are similar in age, and both of the parties are struggling to decide whether or not they want to go forward with octogenarian candidates. And then you have Gretchen Whitmer and Tudor Dixon, who are very similar in age. They're in their 40s. They are Gen X. They are ostensibly fighting for the future of those parties. What does the face of the future of the party look like? And so there is this like they both want to put themselves into that space and working towards what's next, not only for Michigan, but for their own personal careers, right? Mm -hmm. Whether or not they're going to run for higher office mm -hmm. after this, are they going to try again mm -hmm. to run for something else? And I think there is, um, if there was anything forward looking about the, that debate, it's that this is a debate between what the future is of American politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Laura, well, I, I have to just, butt in there yeah, too let me just and quickly... say that this is historical in that this is the first debate in Michigan's history with Absolutely. two women That's right. on the debate stage. That's Absolutely. right. It was Laura, I was just going to quickly know, um, I believe Gretchen Whitmer did turn 50 during COVID, but we should did say, I we should say 50, 50, you know, is the new 40. So really. <laughs> right. And in my case, 40 is the new 27. Exactly. Uh, so. Yeah. Just want to make a quick note. Um, Simon, very quickly, you interviewed both Governor Whitmer and Tudor Dixon for pieces um, running last week in M Live. Phyllis in a little bit about what you heard from both of these candidates that might have been a little different from the debate last night? Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, when you have them on their own and you don't have to sort of have them be explicitly in contrast Exactly why I'm another, curious, yeah. Uh, they are able to move uh, in more directions. Obviously, Tudor Dixon is someone who cares deeply about education. This is an issue that's really important to her and kind of the center of her debate, as Laura discussed earlier. And so she sort of has a plan where she wants to bring parents back in charge and tie that into perhaps some culture wars topics, but really wants to uh, look at pandemic learning loss, which is one of the, I think, the trickiest and stickiest issues for Governor Whitmer, uh, because this is something that kids continue to suffer from. Um, I think on, on Governor Whitmer's side, uh, she really is interested in the economy. She's interested in climate change. She also wanted to center on education as well. But she's looking at sort of bringing a more holistic view to education. And this sort of brings to the contrast between them. Uh, Dixon is really advocating a back to basics approach. The, the three that uh, people frequently talk about is reading, writing, and math. You provide the curriculum, you instruct the children, and that's it. Whereas what uh, Whitmer kind of uh, hammers home over and over again is wraparound supports. The idea that 
education and public school system can be a place where students can receive mental and emotional, uh, you know, uh, support, therapy, so that they can uh, be healthy and have the best learning environment possible. And so this contrast between the two is sort of, I think, getting at the heart of some of the cultural tensions mm-hmm. that we're seeing as, as a uh, country right and now. And the actual policy issues. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, as we wrap up our conversation, this is just about the debate, because we don't need to spend as much talking about the debate as the length of the actual debate. But Mara, I do quickly want to get your take uh, Uh, Look, you work in the Detroit TV market, the largest in the state. What did it mean um, for voters that this debate last night did not air in the most populous area in the entire state in the Detroit media market? Uh, Well, I think Tudor Dixon's campaign would have loved this debate to have been shown Mm -hmm. in the Detroit media market. Like she came out of the gate saying most for most of you, this may be the first time you're seeing me. you know, one wag on Twitter said, if it doesn't air in the largest media market in the state, was there really a debate? <laughs> of course, there was. Re- of course, there really is a debate. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens closer to the end of the month when we do have a debate on this side of the state. And that will be Tuesday, October 25th. But really, who's who's counting? Um, so finally, this hour, y'all, we are number one. Right now, Michigan is the top state in ad spending on state legislative races this election cycle. Woohoo! We did it, guys. That's <laughs> awesome. According. Congratulations to you all. Yeah, we get like it's a great. cake. What's the what's the prize? <laughs> um, that's according to new data from Ad Impact. The reporting says Michigan State House and Senate campaigns have spent drum roll, please. $29 million on ads so far this year. Wow. Uh, Simon, you love to dig into the money game. Just put this first into perspective for us and why this number matters. Yeah. I mean, uh, when you look at uh, the Mission Campaign Finance Network, my uh, prior employer, mm-hmm. uh, they found that 2018 was the most expensive House and Senate elections of all time in mm-hmm. Michigan. And then 2020 became the most expensive uh, once again. Hmm. And I think that we're very much on track now. Um, the Senate races, when you look at the advertising spending uh, in the most expensive Michigan Senate races, the number one being the 12th district, which is sort of along the gross uh, points and uh, by Lake St. Clair, that uh, has already spent, I believe, more than $4 million. And that's already making it with an advertising alone, the most expensive Michigan Senate race of all time, if I believe. And so, uh, you know, this is I think we don't really know where this is going to bottom out or how much money is ultimately going to be spent at the end of the day. Unfortunately, uh, Michigan uh, candidates don't have to file another campaign finance filing until the very tail end of October. So you don't even know how much money gubernatorial candidates have raised uh, after the primary until like a week before the election. It's very disappointing. I can tell that is internally gnawing you. Yeah, it makes me very, very And sad. should really all <laughs> Michiganders to not know, right? Um, and also necessarily know where always the money is coming from. Right. And so this that's a really good point, if I can uh, please. add on a little bit more, which is Tell that me how good my point was, Simon, please. The, <laughs> the largest dark money advertisers in these legislative races uh-huh. uh, in the prior election cycle were Michigan's political parties themselves. Yep. Hmm. We have uh, a quirk in our campaign finance law called administrative accounts, where you can, uh, you know, they're supposed to be for office supplies and maybe, you know, renting out uh, office space. But instead, you are... Um, 
able to use these for issue advertising because issue advertising doesn't fall under the scope of Michigan campaign finance law. And as a result, uh, you can dump in money and unlimited amounts from unknown sources. I have a question for Simon. Can I ask? Do it, girl. That's a little ask the expert moment for yeah. me. Uh, <laughs> if, you know, we know that Governor Whitmer's war chest has been ample because of uh, challenges. It was based on a, a, a loophole, right? Based, uh, because of a recall campaign against her. Um, is she able to forward that money to campaigns that might be suffering otherwise in the House districts or Senate districts? This is an excellent question. Um, that Thank extra you. money, the extra <laughs> money above $7,150, it was determined in an agreement with the, with the Michigan Department of State that that money would then be transferred after the recounts ended, quote unquote, uh, to the Michigan Democratic Party. So the Michigan Democratic Party has a hold of that money and they're able to do with it what they will. Um, but I, I think a little bit uh, that one of the things that hasn't been discussed about her prodigious fundraising and all the money that she has in the bank is that because she's so self-sustaining and like able to you know run so much advertising on her own, the party itself does not have to prop her up or spend money supporting her. Right. Instead, they can uh, divert that money down the ballot, which is a huge boon to legislative races. It was and she also has the DGA coming in for you know air support for her, so sh- she's mm-hmm. in. She is in a financial sweet spot, that mm-hmm. is for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, Simon, you had done the math a few weeks ago, right? And wasn't it like $26 to every $1 or something like that that, right. that the Whitmer campaign had? Um, yes. When you look at advertising spending, though, uh, yeah. from the the uh, end of the primary through the general election, the uh, something like Democrats have received $41 million in broadcast advertising mm-hmm. to, I believe, uh, 6 or $7 million mm-hmm. on the Republican side. It's... Mm-hmm. Uh, not comparable at all. Getting back to these um, state House and Senate races, I think we need to note what's going on here, though. And a lot of that has to do with redistricting, right? And in 2018, voters approved for the first time in our history the fact that an independent commission rather than political parties would redraw maps, both state House and Senate and as well, of course, congressional district maps. And so what we're seeing really is some of this the impact of seeing Mm -hmm. more competitive state house and state senate races and thus more ads. Yeah, it says to me right off the bat that both parties view that both chambers as in play, which is scary for the Republicans because, as Governor Whitmer noted last night, Republicans have been in control of both chambers for most of the past four decades. There was some period of time where Democrats had the House, but... um, But really, uh, politically, they were still leaning pretty far right. And I think that both parties have a real vested interest in trying to wrest control from the other this time around. Mara, we've got about 45 seconds. You constantly talk to really smart political analysts. What are you hearing about the state of play in both the state House and state Senate? That they're both in play. And I think, you know, in my 19 years in television in Detroit, I have never seen the volume of ads for state Senate races that we are seeing now. I mean, in some cases, they far outpace what Tudor Dixon has put on TV in Metro. Uh, it, it is uh, it's astonishing. And it just goes to show that that they truly believe the Senate's in play. Mm-hmm. Simon, uh, I'm going to do this to you again, though, but in about the next, you know, 15, 30 seconds, again, you watch the money game. Will this just be collectively the most expensive races that we have seen in the history of Michigan this election cycle? I don't know that it will be. And that's in large part because the spending uh, between these two gubernatorial candidates has been so lopsided Hmm. in favor of uh, Gretchen Whitmer. The 
the primary ended, and they yeah. were looking for reinforcements, the cavalry, and it never came for Tudor Dixon. Fascinating. Hmm. Well, this is something we'll have to explore in a, in a few weeks um, after 25 days, because that is how far away we are from Election Day. And that's the Stateside It's Just Politics podcast for today. I'm Zoe Clark. You can find the full Stateside show at michiganradio.org. Today's episode was produced by Ronia Cabinsog. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our podcast producer is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music in this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks so much for listening. 